Welcome back to Bootability, a weekly interview series about the amazing ability we all have to change our lives and the world if we're brave enough to tap into it. I'm your host, Jihi Jolly. Today we're talking about happiness and what it takes to believe that you can be happy, even when you're facing the most difficult circumstances. Our guest is Christina Moran of Texas, who shares her own journey of pursuing happiness after experiencing a series of very challenging events that made her feel like she had hit rock bottom. Before we begin, I wanna quickly define happiness in Buddhism because there are two kinds. The first is relative, which is the kind of happiness that is dictated by our external circumstances. When things are good, we're happy. When they aren't, we aren't either. The second, and the kind that Buddhists strive to pursue through chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo, is called absolute happiness, which is a state of life that is unshakable, a happiness that comes from a deep sense of confidence and self-worth enabling us to experience joy even when storms are raging. Christina's story is about the latter. I'll let her share the rest. So my name's Christina. I'm 29 years old and I'm calling from El Paso, Texas. And I'm a licensed vocational nurse here in El Paso, also pursuing my master in social work. Wow, and I know you're also a mom right? <laughs> yes, of course. I am a mom to a three-year-old and a six-year-old. Oh, wow. Okay. So hands definitely full. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know we'll hear about many different pieces of your life today. So first and foremost, thank you for taking the time to speak and share your story with Buddhism. So I always like to start with a little bit of context about kind of how and why somebody started practicing Buddhism and chanting nam myoho renge kyo And I know in your case specifically, it was that sort of like during a pretty acute challenge in a sense. So as much as you're comfortable sharing, of course, could you kind of just tell me the story of like, yeah, like, how did you encounter Buddhism, but especially when you started really practicing consistently and in earnest, kind of what was happening? Absolutely. So I encountered the practice in 2012, actually. And I didn't receive my Gohans until 2017. And then I didn't start practicing till 2019. So it's kind of a journey. For me, when I did receive my Gohonzon in 2017, I was in this period of seeking, really feeling like there was more out there that maybe the way I was doing things on my own were not benefiting me. But I was also still very convinced that the answers could be somewhere outside of myself. And so my practice didn't really take off at that time. Thankfully, though, the things that I learned came in handy at a crucial moment in 2019. I was in a very dark place. So January 3rd of 2019, I married my second husband and we were expecting my second child. Nine days later, my sister died by suicide and we were very close, we were two years apart. So we were very, very close growing up. I mean, best friends, knew everything there was to know about each other and shared so much of our lives. And that was profoundly difficult, you know, amidst all these other life changes. Mm -hmm. And 
so I was pregnant at the time that she died and I gave birth to Leo exactly six months later, actually. And I fell pretty quickly into a very deep postpartum depression, unlike anything I had ever experienced before. It was definitely complicated by grief. All of these emotions that I had not allowed myself to feel regarding her death came to the surface, you know, in that moment. Birth is just an experience that allows that to happen. It's so physical and emotional and hormonal. And I had sort of known that once I did give birth, that all of these things were going to come to the surface and they did. So I spent a couple of months contending with that on my own. And and I really hit a point of rock bottom. You know, I was having suicidal thoughts pretty much daily. I was afraid that the only path for me was the path that she took, you know, Mm -hmm. and I really did not want to pass that pain and grief and loss onto my children. That's kind of how I looked at it. Like if I can't carry this, then that means they have to, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but I had this book, Unlocking the Mysteries of Birth and Death by Daisaku Ikeda. And I may have had this from when I was studying before, but it was there at a perfect time. And I just felt like I need to read this book. And so I picked it up. I started reading it and I got through the entire thing in one day while working. I was working from home at the time. And like every five minutes, I wasn't on a call. I was reading this book. And I remember encountering the passage. And Daisaku Ikeda talks about how you may lose a loved one who has not practiced Nichiren Buddhism. But as long as like our their family members and friends are chanting for them that they can surely attain Buddhahood and surely like become happy themselves. And I can remember that moment in a visceral way. Like there was a tangible shift in that moment, reading that passage, this light bulb went off that had, you know, had not been there. And I felt hope for the first time, a a small amount, but it was the first time since her passing that I felt hope. Wow. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, okay. Hold on. First of all, thank you for sharing. I know that, yeah, that, that's a lot of kind of deep, deeply personal experience that you're sharing. So thank you for, for being vulnerable in that way. And there's so many little things that you've touched on that I want to move to unpack. But I, I do have one question just in terms of timeline, because also to share some kind of context for this episode, I was so moved by your story when I first heard a little bit of it. And so I'm, you know, so happy that we're able to speak today because I think that sometimes when kind of we're dealt like a really tough hand, you know, no matter what it is, it can feel like like a very, very long game of survival. And so I, as much as you're comfortable sharing, of course, that period like that you started to describe of postpartum depression also sort of like unlocking this grief that you had to had to go through how long was that period and like if you don't mind my asking you know like what what did it look like day to day just thinking from the perspective of someone who might kind of be like oh you know that's kind of where I'm at and I you know you know what I mean yes absolutely I would say it began a couple weeks after Leo was born he was born on June 12th of 2019 and so it's a couple of weeks and I remember the first day, I guess, that it hit me 
the very first day that it hit me, I cried for 16 hours. Uh, oh my gosh. Uh, and then days just continued like that. Like an entire week went on that way. And I, you know, it, it's a very challenging time with a new baby. You're sleep deprived. There's a lot of emotions. It is normal to cry a little bit or a lot, but I could just tell that this these tears, this grief was coming from somewhere so deep that felt like a bottomless pit, essentially, because they would just, they wouldn't stop, you know, all my waking hours, pretty much I was crying. And that carried on for about a week that first time. And then I would have periods of not being quite so bad, I I guess, for lack of better words. And but it would spring up on me like that, a three, three days of crying like that again. Mm-hmm. I really wasn't eating. I was working. Yeah, I was working from home at that time. And I had a very challenging job. And somehow I managed to do that. And I was keeping up with my school. Not really sure how I was doing that either. But everything suffered. You know, I would be crying in between calls at work, like really just struggling to hold on to all these things that I needed to do as a person, as a wife, as a mother. I know that one of the things that really impacted me during that time, my older son was about three years old and he got in a habit of coming to me in the morning and looking looking at my face to see if I was sad that day, like if it was going to be a day where I was crying all day. And wow. that was so that was kind of the state of my life at that time. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I can only imagine. Thank you for for sharing that. And and so um so as you were sharing, so you kind of pick up this book that you may have had for a while, but somehow this is the moment. For anyone who's also new and has no idea what the book is is about, just like briefly if you don't mind sharing what what the kind of topic was. I mean, I, the title sort of gives it away, but you know, some people might be completely new to Buddhism. What kind of drew you to it? And then yeah, when you did like kind of read that quote, what what made it sort of settle in for you? Absolutely. Uh, so unlocking the mysteries of birth and death kind of follows what we call the four sufferings, which is birth, aging, sickness, and death. And so these are the things that produce suffering in humanity. And so unlocking the mysteries of birth and death goes through the Buddhist perspective on all of those things, because while they are an inherent source of suffering, they can also become a source of fulfillment, a source of mission and joy. And so um, there's also a a saying that I encountered in that book that I loved. It said, first study death. Like if you're going to study Buddhism for study death. And I was like, that's what I'm here to do. (laughs) You know, the Buddhist view on death is a little bit more complex, I think, than some other religions. And so I wasn't really aware of any of that prior that I hadn't studied it before. I didn't have a reason to, you know, when I had first encountered the practice, I hadn't gone that deep and definitely wasn't trying to confront death. So, (laughs) you know, at this time, that is what I was trying to do. And so it really talked about the permanence, I guess, of life, you know, even though it doesn't continue in our present form, you know, we don't continue in our same bodies forever, you know, that life is eternal. And I think the most important thing for me was 
in reading that passage was like, there's something I can do. Because I had been contending with that since her death. Like, she's dead. There's nothing I can do. Like, that thought would always keep coming back to me of like, there's nothing I can do. You know, that like, death is the end. <laughs> and so when I read that passage specifically, I remember feeling like that for the first time. Like, there's something I can do for her, even though she's already passed. And that was life-changing for me in that moment. And it really was in that moment that I knew that I would practice Buddhism for the rest of my life, like in her honor, no matter how difficult it became, that for her life, I would not give up, you know? So that's sort of where everything began for me. Mm. Oh my goodness. Wow. That's really beautiful. And I'm sure also reassuring to anybody who's experienced grief. I've, I've spoken with some people for the podcast and then also, of course, in my personal life. So I, I, I understand in a, in a sense what you mean. But for those who are completely new to chanting, so maybe we can talk about what that looked like. So because it, I first of all love that you shared that part you know like like first understand death if you want to know how yeah. to live which yes i i adore that thought as well because in a sense it's like almost the perfect metaphor for exactly what you did <laughs> because i know so much <laughs> changed after that so yeah so did you start chanting after reading that book or what was that kind of process like for you so i read that book on november 1st of 2019 and so i was like we're at the first of the month and i was at this point of really hitting rock bottom. You know, my, my marriage was suffering, my family relationships, my work, everything, you know, was suffering as a result of that state that, that I was in, and like so deep in depression. And so I decided to challenge myself to 30 days of faith practice and study for the month of November. And so I did start chanting that day. Initially, it was kind of tucked away in my office downstairs very quietly, hoping nobody would hear me or in my car, you know, just kind of as private as I, as I could, but you know, over time, of course that, that changed. And so, yeah, I, I started on that day, November 1st. Wow. And I'm curious, like what, how November then ended, like, did you feel differently immediately or again I'm thinking from the perspective of someone who's new who's like oh okay 30 days of faith practice study like what does that actually look like and then like what were the sort of immediate or our short-term kind of changes that you saw if any so immediately I felt it's a little bit hard to describe but I felt better able to make decisions and maybe that could be described as wisdom you know I started going to therapy I got a medication. So I was really able to tap into just my inherent wisdom, I guess, and make these choices that were also going to benefit my life and my environment. I stopped crying all the time. <laughs> my son stopped coming and looking at my face to see if it would be a happy day or a sad day. There was just so much more peace in my home because my home had become a very chaotic place, you know, as a result of everything that I was going through on top of having a new baby and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. And so that was something that was felt immediately. Yeah, I think those were the things that really changed right away. I know that I attended my district's general meeting at the end of that month. And that was a big deal for me. You know, everything in my environment didn't immediately change. It took some time 
to kind of repair the damage that was done. But I felt capable of doing that. And I felt hopeful that it would happen. You know, I, I felt like I was capable of of kind of mending all of the, the damage that had been done. Mm, yeah, yeah, I hear you. One thing that stands out about what you're like one question that people who are really new to the practice they want to know like is it chanting that is doing something like is it you sitting down and chanting or is it all of this other action that you're you're then taking you know for instance in your case it made sense you you know were able to go to therapy or start with medication in someone else's circumstance depending on what they're going through it could be like the practical action side of it and like Mm -hmm. i'm sure you know and i know that Buddhism is so much about both of those things. So, but I, so I'm wondering, like that said, I'm just wondering, do you feel like it was a natural process of like, okay, I'm, I'm sort of coming out of the woods through this 30 day thing, like, like process I'm going through or a chanting journey I'm going through, or was there sort of like you had to really decide, okay, this is what I need to do next, or this is my goal, or this is where I want to head. Does that make sense? So my initial goal and I like to talk about this because my first initial goal in those 30 days was survival. That was it. That was like the highest thing that I could see for myself at that was just to survive and for my family to survive, my marriage to survive, all of these things that were sort of rocked by the chaos, you know, in my life at the time. And so that was my initial goal was just survival. And so that's what I focused on when I was chanting and by the end of the 30 days, it was different. You know, I I could see beyond survival by the end of the 30 days. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I completely understand. And actually, yeah. So this is a little bit of what we discussed on the phone because, and also if you're comfortable sharing, you know, I know that like you're like giving birth and your sister's passing marked this very kind of important time for you but our sort of life tendencies or our karma it starts way way before that you know and we didn't talk much about kind of like how you were doing or where you were out prior to all of that happening you know at that moment of course it makes sense that life felt like survival but is that sort of how it always had been or like do you view it as like this was like a very intense period I went through and I had to come out of it or or was it like a longer term struggle for you to kind of shift from pursuing happiness from surviving to pursuing happiness it had always been a struggle I think survival was always the name of the game for me as long as I can remember so I guess pretty much like adolescence onward through adulthood this situation made survival on my own feel nearly impossible when in the past I could just kind of coast with it you know I'd have my ups and downs, you know, and, but that was as high as we ever got was just kind of surviving and doing okay. You know, my sister Maria, she struggled with mental health her entire life. I mean, pretty much from birth onward. And so that created some challenging family dynamics in my upbringing. I'm the middle child. I also have a younger brother and he has struggled with incarceration throughout most of his adolescence and adult life. And so I think I was just kind of lost in the middle of that and always looking for my place in the world. I really, really tried to cope with relationships. I had a lot of 
relationships, whether they be serious or casual, and would get very, very invested in those from a young age, like 15 years old, and be crushed when they didn't work out. By 17, that changed into substance abuse as well. I started experimenting with drugs and alcohol, which led to an active addiction when I was 17, causing me to drop out of high school. I was able to get clean and I'm still clean. And my life stabilized a little bit when around the time that my older son was born, I I was married and sort of like living this semi-normal life, but I still struggled with very intense emotions, bipolar disorder. So just really unregulated emotions and ups and downs. And although I wasn't engaging in substance abuse or things like that, I still was having a pretty rough time throughout all of that. I see. I see. Oh, yeah. Thank you for for sharing. So then it was actually in the middle of that that you originally encountered Buddhism. Is that right? Mm -hmm. I see. Okay. Did you chant earlier too, or just a little bit? So I did chant a little bit around the time of receiving my Gohanzan, which was 2017. And I think that my disconnect was thinking that I was chanting to something like I wanted this thing to bestow a better life upon me Uh, and so I don't think I was really getting anywhere just because I could not comprehend at that time that it came from within I was so used to everything being external and even though I was reading this stuff and studying this stuff it just was not connecting with me at that time that it really came from within and that I was not asking for something else to change my life, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the hardest things about practicing Buddhism (laughs) because it's so easy to just fall into that default mode. You know, it's just so nice to have something take care of you or hope that it will. (laughs) Yes. You know, and I'd like to kind of make a connection here because this has to do with how and why I did start practicing in 2019. So at that time where I was, I had this thought that like nothing could reach me. Like my husband could not fix this for me, my family, my friends, if there's a God, they, even they couldn't reach me. I felt like unreachable, you know, in this state that I was in. And then I remembered the things that I had studied, that it comes from within. And I thought, okay, if it's already in there, then we can give it a shot because nothing is going to penetrate what I'm going through right now. And so I I did have that thought of like remembering, oh, they said it's it's already within. So if it's in here with all this other stuff, then maybe we can bring it forward. Mm. Yeah, yeah, completely understand. And that that actually does speak to this question that I, I want to ask because going back to sort of, I guess, November 2019, you share that, you know, your initial goal was survival. And then you chanted for for 30 days and you felt better able to make decisions and take care of yourself and find the resources that would help you do that. At at some point, that kind of goal changed, it sounds like, beyond just surviving. So I'm curious if you can share more about this or sort of like, you know, it's almost like you touched on it because that core teaching of Buddhism that everything is inside you is one of the hardest things to believe, even if you are chanting. And I'm and I'm wondering kind of like, yeah, what kind of happened next for you internally after that month of chanting? 
so as a byproduct, I suppose, of chanting, since my goal was simply survival, I started to value my own life. And I had never valued my own life before. It, my life felt like this thing that I was kind of stuck with. And I just, I don't know, I never found any value in my own life, really. And I think that was evidenced by the abuse, you know, to my body with substances and um, not eating and just all kinds of things, unhealthy relationships. You know, I never really demonstrated value of my own life. And so it's kind of difficult to explain what that feeling was like. I guess for me, the way that I've been able to describe it is that previously I was approaching the world from this place of lack and emptiness and that affects how you deal with everything and everyone. And so I went from that to approaching the world from a place of value and that just in big and small ways changed the way that I interact with myself and the world. Yeah, I love that. And what you're describing is I mean, what this show is called, what the core teaching of Buddhism is, but like that we actually have this thing in us <laughs> called Buddhability and it it can never really be depleted. It's an infinite resource. But I, I completely hear you. I mean, if first of all, if you've never been exposed to that way of thinking, it's hard to to believe that we have this kind of resource within us. But then even once you are introduced to it, to believe that it's there and consistently use it is difficult unless you're practicing tapping into it and you actually see it in your daily life. So I am curious, like, in a, you know, you described sort of like what your days were like in those early months postpartum and that kind of after you started chanting consistently, how did your external environment change or like, you know, what did it look like for you to, for, for instance, as you're saying, start to feel this sense of value, you know, for your own life? I have, there was one small moment, and this may speak to people that have kids, but this really affected me. I'd always been so excited about like the little things like the holidays. And I know prior to starting to practice, like their Halloween was coming and I felt nothing about it. It was just another thing to get through. And that touched me like on this deep level of like, even these things that I used to find joy in I'm not finding joy in anymore mm -hmm. and so I think that was a shift for me it was finding joy in motherhood again that was prior to the practice that was my greatest source of joy and at that time even that was not able to pull me out of where I was and so but once I did start practicing I was able to find that joy again in these little things like they're holidays or, you know, just doing the things for them that you do as a mother. And that was huge for me. I was scared at that time. I was like, why ever feel this again? Even these little happinesses in daily life. I, I was scared that I wouldn't feel those things again. And so I did start to feel that again, which was like a connection back to myself. I think that was one of the hardest things about losing Maria was losing this piece of myself, you know, my identity was so wrapped up in her being her younger sister. And I almost felt like I was living in somebody else's body, you know, after her death, like completely disconnected from who I was from the things that brought me joy. And so I started to feel those connections coming back. 
connected to myself again, connected to my kids again, finding happiness in that, having the wisdom to make apologies. You know, I started to mend some of these family relationships that had been damaged throughout this time and felt a lot of assurance in that. Those are kind of difficult conversations to have, but not being afraid, really feeling like assured in my decisions. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Did like, did the people in your life know that you were chanting or that you had started chanting? After a while, yes. (laughs) I remember my husband opened the door of my office one day and was like, what are you doing? Uh, and so, you know, we just went with it and I didn't necessarily try to explain it at that time. I just kept going and I didn't have the full support, you know, of everybody in my life when I started, I definitely didn't. And that was a challenge to overcome, but that's one of those things that I never really worried about. I always felt like, okay, like we're going to overcome this. And now my husband and I have like a joke, like, do you like me before I started chanting better or after? And he's like, oh, you do you, do your thing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. I completely, I, I feel like I have that conversation with friends who don't practice, you know, it's always like the most fun to, for the people outside of you who know you really well to, who can tell like if you've been chanting or not. That's really sweet. So, so then I I feel like we should just define it, you know, because happiness is a very loaded word. And, you know, it it is something quite specific in Buddhism. And at the same time, it's unique to every person. So like, I'm curious what happiness means to you now. And, and like, was there sort of a moment where you were like, I'm, I'm in pursuit of happiness, like, this is what I want for my life. Yes. Okay. So when I first started, it was just reconnecting with those sort of fleeting moments of happiness, like the day-to-day life sort of going to the park with my kids makes me happy or reading this book makes me happy or, you know, just things like that, which was big for me at the time, you know, to be able to experience those feelings again. But it was actually this past November, November of 2021, that I really started to focus on a true happiness, like an unshakable happiness, doesn't depend on your environment. You know, I was facing some big challenges in my family that really were threatening to destroy everything that I had worked on over the past two years by that time. And I started chanting to change myself. And I really didn't know what that was supposed to look like or what it was that I needed to change. But throughout that process of chanting, really to change myself, I realized that I was developing this happiness that was not dependent on my environment. That was probably the second most difficult time of my life, the most chaotic, the most tumultuous. And I was truly happy from within. And it amazed me. I was kind of surprised. I... I still hadn't really seen that as a goal for myself, to be honest, you know, I I was chanting just to change myself like that. That was it. I didn't really know what that was going to look like. I didn't know what I needed to change. And that was what came forward, you know, from within was really feeling for the first time happiness without it being dependent on a relationship or 
a job or all these things that I was basing my worth on all of the time or basing my value on all of the time in big or small ways. Mm, Yeah, it's so yeah, what you're describing for anybody new is what we call human revolution in Buddhism or like this kind of inner transformation where you take responsibility for everything that you experience, even if it's in your environment and you can't possibly think of why you are the one who is responsible for like, for instance, someone else's behavior or whatever circumstance. But but if you don't mind us unpacking this kind of like this kind of goal that you started chanting with or this prayer of changing yourself a little bit, because I there is like in society, right? We do live in a society where people feel like they have to constantly change themselves to be to be better, to look a certain way, to fit in in a certain way. And like, that's very, very different than changing yourself in Buddhism, because Buddhism is also about accepting yourself as you are and like treasuring yourself and valuing yourself. So where did that come from? Like that, like what, what even motivated you to start chanting to change yourself, if that makes sense? And what do you mean by like, was it like a specific yeah, was it something specific you wanted to change? Or like, I just want to unpack it a little bit for anyone who might be like, what do you mean you started chanting to change yourself? So we have a saying, I'm sure you know, when we change our environment changes. And so that was the premise of, I needed to affect change in my environment. And for that to happen, I needed to change myself. And of course, it wasn't like changing the core of who I am. You know, it's not changing my weird hobbies or quirks or like, you know, the things that make me me. It it was more so like that bringing forward my best qualities, like bringing forward like the bootability to the forefront of my life is what I needed to do in order to affect change in my environment. And I really didn't know what that looked like. You know, we do talk about happiness a lot in Buddhism. And I think in a lot of ways, I still was kind of writing it off for me. Like, oh, you know, that's for other people. <laughs> you know, that's for people who have don't have mental health diagnosis or people that haven't had the life experience that I've had. Like they can become happy, but not me. Mm-hmm. And not that I was really consciously dissecting it that way, but I just still didn't consider it an option for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the key, you know, that I, I learned during that time. That was the thing that needed to come forward was, realizing that that was possible for me and then bringing it forward in my yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah, I really really love that. Yeah, it's it's um cuz that experience is so real. Like there are times when you can just you can hear someone else's story and be like that's great for them. Yes. And yes, I <laughs> theoretically believe that you can use this practice to get there, but not for me. Like I am the exception to the rule kind of that feeling. <laughs> I remember That's such a, a human saying thing. that. Yeah, it, it's so human. I remember a friend saying that once, you know, like, sorry, like, you're not the exception to the rule of like, the mystic law. <laughs> it, it just works. Yes, but it can feel that way for sure. Um, so so before I move, like, I, I always like to ask about kind of a Buddhist quote or concept and advice, you know, at the end. But before we move there, I'm curious, in terms of this journey, just to crystallize it, you know, for for like someone who is in the middle of their rock bottom experience or their like 
something that's making them feel like they're at a very, very low point. If you had to sort of describe the evolution of your goals or your prayers, you know, from I just need to get through this and like keep going to where you are now and kind of like what's on your mind or in your heart when you're chanting and you wake up in the morning and you're pursuing stuff. Like, how would you sort of summarize that evolution, if that makes sense, if it was like a little mountain that that each step Uh, changed? Yeah. So, yeah, we we started with survival and that was just let me get through this. And I have a lot of compassion for that person now. And I think that that is a wonderful place to start if that's where you are. And that's all you can see, you know, because at that time, if somebody told me chant for my happiness, I don't know that I would have been able to see that. Like I could kind of see survival at that time. And so that's where I started was at that. And I think as I went on through that, you know, I started to value my life. So I kind of chanted to foster that value, like to tend to it, to let that grow, you know, because it was just a little tiny little sprout at that time. (laughs) Um, So I I chanted for that. Um, I was able to chant for other people in my life to become happy. I chanted for my kids to become happy, my family, my husband, you know, extended family. Um, So I could see that then for other people. I could see happiness as a possibility. And I chanted for that. And I think from there, I really chanted to thrive. I think that was like the big step from survival is like, okay, I'm thriving now. Not happy, but I'm thriving. Like we're doing it. I, you know, and so that was probably where I was at prior to this past November, where I really started to be able to chant for my own happiness. Mm. Yeah, I understand. And if you don't mind my asking, you know, you shared earlier when you first read that quote about like being able to chant for a loved one, even if they aren't here with us physically anymore. Did that is that still like the forefront of your of your practice or like how does that sort of connect with, you know, if that was your starting point, it feels like there's so many people that you chant for now (laughs) and there's like so much, you know, I'm I'm sure that your sister's at the heart of all of it, but I'm curious how, how you felt that kind of shift or experienced chanting for her and, and how it sort of blossomed. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, definitely. So it started out with my primary motivation being for her. Like I will chant for her life for the rest of my life. And I also was chanting for survival at that same time. You know, I have to survive for there to be a rest of my life. So, so that was definitely the forefront of my practice. And I think that definitely has changed. You know, like you said, there's so many other people. And I think that it's really just evolved into deeply chanting for people who are suffering and just for the suffering that's within the world, that's mm-hmm. within myself, you know, um, so that is definitely shifted, but there's there's like a special connection that I feel with her when I'm doing activities or even doing something like this. Like I feel like everything that I'm doing within my Buddhist practice is directly benefiting her life because that's where my Buddhist practice began. And so I just find that so like profound. It's <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Yeah, it's like a shared life, you know? Um, 
Yeah, it's it's really beautiful. And, and that actually, that makes me think, I, I didn't think to ask about this, but one kind of final piece of this is mm-hmm. I'm curious what the role of the of the Buddhist community was in your practice, because of course there's chanting every day and studying when, and you've shared, you know, a bit about those, but there's also this like very vibrant, active Buddhist community. I know you're a part of it in El Paso. And I know that now you're also supporting and connecting with other people who practice. So just curious, like, yeah, what role that played in, in your own journey. So when I first started to practice again, there was one leader in particular that never stopped reaching out to me. So initially it was just her and I, you know, kind of, and she helped me get connected again, back to my district where I was able to attend a meeting that same month in November and really deeply connected with the community at that time. Of course, a few short months later, we had COVID, which changed things. You know, I was going to the center with my kids and, you know, getting to see everybody in person on Sundays and all of that. And, you know, Zoom did change things a little bit, but I feel now like even the people that I've only ever seen on Zoom, I feel like I know them, you know, (laughs) in a very personal way. You know, they're one of, you know, the greatest support systems that I have. Yeah. It's, it's like when you can't chant, you, you know, can connect with somebody. And when you are connecting with somebody, I mean, or, or like when you're really chanting and you need to study, so someone will help you like choose the right thing to study. It's like this like completely forcing set of practices that combine. You know what I mean? It's it's incredible. I had the opportunity to serve as a district leader and really, really bonded with the other leaders and members in the community and had the opportunity to also reach out to be the person that's reaching out to the young woman that maybe needs some support or guidance and so it's like kind of coming full circle a little bit. Yeah, amazing. So so I want to move to my two closing questions. Just thinking about this whole journey, do you have kind of a favorite Buddhist concept that you always go back to or a Buddhist quote that you always go back to? I'm sure there's many, but yeah, anything that you'd want to share? Yes, I'm super prepared. I have them right here. <laughs> and I <laughs> actually have two. It's one from Nichiren Daishonin and one from Daisaku Ikeda. Sure. And so the first one, Nichiren writes, Myo means to revive, that is to return to life. It's very short, but that from the moment I read it was actually in 2017 and it just touched my heart, even though I could not comprehend it. And now, you know, a couple of years into my practice, I just, it reminds me of the restorative power of like the power to really restore everything in life, you know, even from previous lives, the happiness I never felt restored, you know, Mm -hmm. so I love, love that quote. And then I actually have a different quote. This is from Daisaku Ikeda. And I encountered this quote after a friend of mine, sister died by suicide. And it has been probably the core of my practice ever since when it says, To my friends, in the midst of hardships, we need to strengthen human bonds more than ever. Let's convey voices of love and care and help relieve friends of their worries and anxieties. Let's become people of action who remove suffering and impart joy. (laughs) So like that's the purpose of life, to remove suffering and impart joy in yourself and in others, your environment. So 
Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. It it, it like it elevates, you know, your entire not just yours, but one's entire struggle, whatever it is that you might be going through, you know, to this like plane where all of the other people are too. And it like gives, you know, it gives so much yes. meaning to why we go through through things. Um so I love that. Thank you for sharing. So I'll move to my closing question, which I always end the show with, which is a piece of advice. So if you could give a piece of advice to someone who's new to Buddhism and struggling with feeling like maybe they're just surviving or happiness is not in the cards for them, what would you say? All right. My number one advice is don't give up. Those moments are so difficult. And I know that minutes feel like hours and hours feel like days when you're in that state but see it through don't give up and it's okay if all you can think about is survival like that's okay like don't just don't give up on the hope that you will see happiness someday you don't have to see it at that present moment you know but you can try to foster that that hope Mm -hmm. and I would encourage study about what's troubling you. You know, for me, it was death. That's what I needed to study. You know, for other people, it might be something else. And I would really encourage to seek about that and combine the chanting with the study, you know, for that was really the thing that changed things for me was combining those two things. And so I would recommend to study about whatever it is that's troubling you. I want to leave you today with some words from Buddhist philosopher Daisaku Ikeda that encapsulate what Christina's story demonstrates, especially if you feel like you're just surviving right now, but really want to be happy. He writes, Life is filled with all sorts of struggles and sufferings, our own illness or that of loved ones, death, financial hardship, relationship problems, the frustration of not being able to have what we want, and the list goes on. Problems are unavoidable. They are an inescapable reality of life. Practicing Nichiren Buddhism, chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, enables us to positively transform all of those sufferings in accord with the principle of changing poison into medicine. The poison of suffering is transformed into the medicine of joy. Because of the principle that earthly desires lead to enlightenment, suffering becomes enlightenment and happiness. The greater our problem or sorrow, the greater the happiness we can change it into. This is the power of Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. That's why those who chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo do not fear anything. There is no need to. On that note, as always, if you're new to chanting and want to try it out, we have plenty of resources at buddhability.org. And if you'd like to connect with your local Buddhist community, you can email us at connect at sgi-usa.org. That's all for today, and we'll see you next week.